Welcome to Systematically, the weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, and I am one of your hosts. Uh, I am speaking to you from a cavernous office at St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. I live here with my family, and I am a PhD candidate at Marquette University in Systematic Theology. Uh, I also do some work in philosophy. Let me introduce you, or actually let them introduce themselves, uh, our other hosts. So, hey, Ryan, who are you? Greetings, everyone. Uh, I am Ryan Hemmer. Uh, I am not broadcasting from Austin, Texas, but rather from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, But like John, I am a PhD candidate in systematic theology at Marquette University, uh, where I work in systematic theology. And Robin? Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Robin Bure. I'm broadcasting to you internationally from my home in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, that's right near Buffalo for those of you who are geographically challenged. Um, I am a PhD candidate at Regis College at the University of Toronto, and my area of specialty uh, is theology of children and bioethics. And he couldn't join us today for our first episode, but uh, in the future, Brian Bacek will be joining us. Uh, he is, and I believe, what is he, an assistant professor at Christ the King Seminary? Uh, outside of Buffalo, New York, and he works at the intersection of philosophy and systematic theology, uh, much like I do. And uh, like I said, he'll be with us next week. Uh, We got together and decided we wanted to do a podcast because the three and four of us often go to the same conferences. We're connected broadly with Lonergan uh, Studies people, and we bumped into each other at Marquette for the Lonergan on the Edge Graduate Student Conference uh, in Toronto for conferences there. And we would hang out and talk shop, and we really enjoyed it. We enjoyed the conversations that we would have, and it occurred to us that it's possible. I guess we'll find out when we get the uh, listening listener numbers. We thought, you know, maybe other people might want to eavesdrop on this because gosh, we're having a good time. Now, if that just means that we get together on Saturday mornings and Jawbone and get to talk shop once a week, we're perfectly happy with that. But we hope that you'll join us and listen and uh, have a good time and maybe learn a thing or two. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, the podcast is at Systematic Pod, and uh, you can tell us what you think. But anyway, so... Our focus here is going to be in a kind of broadly systematic theology, philosophical theology, theological ethics angle, and um, sort of how we're going to do things is we'll sort of say hello like we're doing now, and then we'll have a main topic we're going to discuss. Today, we're going to talk about forgiveness. Ryan's going to give us a little uh, framing for uh, why we're going to talk about forgiveness and the way we're going to come at it. And then uh, typically at the end of an episode, we'll, we'll have a segment that we call Treasures Old and New, where each of us will uh, suggest an old book and a new book. And uh, that'll pretty much wrap it up for us. So I think today we're going we're gonna to go a little shorter than normal. Normally, I think this will be an hour podcast, but this is our, our first shot at it, our pilot episode. And uh, we thought we'd keep it tight so you can get a flavor and see if this is something you want to keep listening to. So. Um, did I leave anything out, guys? Anything I should add to that? 
I think you hit all the beats. Okay, cool. So um, we've gone back and forth a bunch about what we were going to talk about today. Um, and it's a, it's a tough time, in, uh, particularly in, in the Roman Catholic world, with uh, various disturbing uh, scandals about sexual abuse and cover-up. Uh, and in light of that, we were going to talk about the topic of forgiveness. And while we were planning the episode, Ryan gave a, a pretty good short articulation of precisely how we wanted to do that, given that this is a theology podcast more than it is, say, a current events podcast. So, Ryan, can you spell out a little bit about what you were saying earlier about how um, specifically we wanted to come at this topic as it relates to current events? Yeah, sure. So if you've been paying attention at all, or if you subscribe to, you know, newspapers or reporters on Twitter, um, hardly any major media outlet has been without either some formal treatment or an op-ed or opinion that's given some kind of take on what's going on in the church right now and in, and in American life in light of that. And uh, some takes are better than others. Um, many of them are just fine. But what almost none of them are um, is systematic. Uh, what, what your average reporter lacks is the uh, training uh, and, frankly, the time uh, to sit with, with this problem, to reflect upon it, not just um, to get a quick byline out so that, so that a publication can say that they treated the topic, but, but to really try to stage an intervention in the way that um, we ourselves and other people are thinking about it. And so the way that I envision this, this conversation happening in a venue like ours is that we do have the space and we do have the training and we do have the time to sit and reflect on the topic, not in terms of how uh, it might make us feel angry, which of course it does, or betrayed, which it also does, but, but to, to think about the matter uh, theoretically systematically, speculatively, philosophically, um, all the ways in which uh, the immediacy of the news cycle doesn't allow, and all the ways in which the um, visceral nature of sitting through mass doesn't allow. Um, and the, the three of us, and four of us when Brian is here, um, I think have the... the uh, well, the, the, the training to be able to address this question in a slightly different way. Um, now, addressing it this way doesn't mean that this is the only way the question ought to be asked or addressed. It's not. Um, but it is one helpful way. Because oftentimes what happens is that practical problems, um, problems that uh, are on the street, um, are only treated practically. And oftentimes that's okay. They're practical problems that demand practical solutions. But occasionally, practical problems demand more than practical solutions. They demand, they're, they're asking actually theoretical questions, questions that, that are calling out for a, a different way of considering the topic, uh, a different way of conceiving and imagining and, and understanding the matter. And so what we want to do is come at Broadly speaking, the, the, the topic that is captivated um, or <laughs> captured uh, the 
frustrations of so many throughout the country and, and indeed throughout the world. Um, and add our voices to the chorus, not just as three more angry takes, although I think we're all three quite angry about it. Um, but, but instead to, to take the opportunity to reflect on the question of forgiveness, um, philosophically and theologically, um, the, the, the issue of forgiveness has uh, a long history in philosophical and theological thought. Its, its possibilities or lack thereof have been considered by Christians and non-Christians, philosophers and theologians. Uh, and so, so taking the time to uh, treat of, of this matter in philosophical and theological terms may prove uh, helpful for us more than anything else as a way of sorting through our own feelings, uh, complicated as they no doubt are. Yeah, I, um, thanks Ryan. I have felt very at sea in all of this. Um, and it's a feeling that I recognize and remember because a couple of years ago, a a young white man named Dylan Roof walked into uh, a church and shot, uh, a a group of African-American Christians having a prayer service. And I felt at sea then too. Um, and I don't have anything particularly substantive to offer on the practical questions of what to do about violent racism in America. Um, at least nothing unique. But what I had at the time were some resources for thinking about something I saw on Twitter and Facebook and on television, which was the family of the uh, people, families of the people killed standing during. Um, the charging conference, I think it was, of Dylan Roof, expressing forgiveness. And this was a kind of stunning thing, and I think a lot of people shared it. Uh, One imagines because it was such a dark and horrifying thing to see some glimmer of what human beings are capable of uh, at the other end of the human spectrum was encouraging. And... At the same time, I felt discomfort because, well, certainly uh, Dylan Roof didn't deserve their words of forgiveness, and yet they gave them anyway, and, and, and a lot of people really um, responded to that, and it, it raised a lot of questions for me, and I thought, you know, with my training, I have a sort of a background in continental philosophy and hermeneutical philosophy. And I thought, I've read very smart people talking about this issue, albeit in an abstract way, but in a way that might be helpful for people to sort this out. Because I can't imagine I'm the only one who has mixed feelings about what I've seen and about the fact that it's been shared so so frequently and with such great proliferation. And so I wrote uh, very quickly, uh, as sometimes happens when you're really troubled by something, uh, a short essay bringing. Paul Ricoeur's account of forgiveness, which if you want to read it, you can find it uh, in the epilogue to Memory, History, Forgetting, one of his later work. A very, uh, very good book as a whole, but the epilogue is especially interesting because he treats this question of forgiveness. And he begins from forgiveness as made into a problem by Jacques Derrida. And for Derrida, forgiveness is, he says, an impossibility. 
And his argument for that has to do with his, his analysis of gift giving. And Derrida considers gift giving, forgiveness is something that's offered. He considers it in terms of exchange. That, that it, what you really can't do is give a gift freely, which is to say give a gift without the expectation of something in return. That, that conceptually it doesn't allow for that because of this sort of horizontal exchange between persons. That you impose a debt by forgiving, by giving a gift. Recur thinks this isn't quite right. And, be, and the specific problem Recur sees with it is that he thinks that Derrida only considers forgiveness in terms of this lateral exchange, this back and forth between persons. But in forgiveness, Recur says, there's a difference, he says, of height and depth, that the person who forgives forgives from a height, and the person who receives forgiveness receives it from a depth. And, and what he means by that, I go into a, a kind of complicated analysis of how it relates to his account of time and eternity in another recur text, Time and Narrative, Volume 1. But, but the, the, what it really boils down to is that when forgiveness is given, it's not given between two persons of equal standing. It's given between someone who has been victimized and someone who is at fault. And that that difference is the thing that allows forgiveness to be meaningful and so be possible. And so recurses, forgiveness is, is, is difficult. Uh, I, I wrote a, a sort of more technical article uh, about the same topic where I, I call it improbable. But it's not impossible. And uh, as a metaphysician, I would want to say we know it's not impossible because it actually occurs. But just because something actually occurs doesn't mean it's not a question for us. That, that it, the way that it is not just actual but also possible can be confounding. And forgiveness is one of those things where I think a lot of times, especially when there has been terrible fault, terrible wrong, terrible betrayal, terrible violence, we experience forgiveness not just as something difficult, but that when we look at the concreteness of the situation, something that whether metaphysically it's possible, it feels phenomenologically impossible. And I think a lot of people, with every reason, feel like right now, within what's going on in the Catholic Church around sex abuse and its cover-up, that forgiveness is at a minimum a question, but but very likely they feel it's it's impossible. And for a religion, uh, a church that puts forgiveness so central to its theology, that can be a kind of deep fissure in the identity of Christian persons, of Catholic uh, relationships, community, ecclesial structures, institutions, etc. So that was sort of the question for me is, uh, you know, where, how do we think rigorously and systematically about forgiveness in a way that does justice to the great difficulty of even raising the word under these circumstances. So let me ask you a couple of questions about that, John. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you're, you're making um, two, I think, very important points that are formally philosophical. 
One is about the relationship between potency and act or possibility and, and actuality and, and which one really has priority in the way we conceive of the world. And the other is about a distinction that you're making between impossibility and improbability. Now, I, I wonder if you can spell those out um, for us a little bit more. Sure. And I'll do it briefly because I'm curious what Robin thinks too. Um, so possibility is something that you can analytically derive from what you have affirmed to be the case. And this is often, especially in modern thought, this is, this is uh, something that people get backwards. In modern thought, there's a tendency, you know, modern thought, big, broad generalization. But, but if I see it enough that it's a kind of trend to think that you can logically hash out what is possible, and then that will set the boundaries of the field of what can be actual. And so if there's disagreement in judgments about what is the case, well, you have to fall within the bounds of the possible. And so it's a matter of working out what is act, sort of, uh, to, you get into this weird thing where you get into disagreements about what is actually possible. But really, possibility is, at, per se, just on its own, is only bounded by strict contradiction. Anything that's not a strict contradiction is, per se, possible. Now, there's all kinds of stuff uh, that never occurs that is per se possible. So that's not a very helpful or interesting philosophical category just on its own. On the other hand, if you make actuality prior, if you work out what is concretely possible and not just abstractly possible from what is, well, now you have a more interesting question. Um, but you also have, a, in a way, a more difficult question because there has to be some agreement about what is the case. Um, and it reveals the way in which what is the case can't be just deduced logically. It requires real investigation. And for that, you need uh, methods of investigation that hew close to uh, what's concretely going on. You need phenomenologies and you need um, various different techniques. Okay, so let me, that was too long. So let me even more briefly treat of the difference between impossibility and improbability. So if, if something is both strictly, per se, abstractly possible, right, it doesn't contain a contradiction. That was Derrida's contention, right? That it contains a contradiction, so it's abstractly impossible. Recur, I think, pretty convincingly shows um, that that fails. But, but even stronger is the claim that, look, uh, forgiveness occurs. Uh, and we see it in small ways and in large ways. And so the question of it being impossible is actually ruled out. Um, that if it is actual, and if that judgment is true that forgiveness occurs, then debates over its abstract possibility are a waste of time. Now, you can ask about what are the conditions that make forgiveness possible concretely? What things need to be in place, and maybe we can talk about this in a minute, what things need to be in place for genuine instances of forgiveness to occur? If we are going to admit that they do occur, um, how do we look at a concrete situation and evaluate, how do we make the judgment, the concrete judgment that there's actually forgiveness here and not some simulacrum or not some false forgiveness or something like that? 
And that is where possibility comes back on the scene. And it seems to me that forgiveness is sufficiently difficult as per occur, that it's very um, unusual in the normal course of things for forgiveness's prior conditions to be in place. It, it's, uh, it just doesn't seem to happen that often. And so in the natural course of things, it seems to me that forgiveness is something improbable. Now, the interesting thing about things that are uh, probable versus improbable is that even improbable things, uh, as we learned uh, a couple of Novembers ago, occur. Even things for which there is a low probability, uh, they still happen. They just don't happen uh, with a kind of predictable regularity according to the function of something more probable, but frequency rather, excuse me. And, um, and so the, it seems to me that the part of the mystery of our world, actually, is that when you do an analysis of the conditions of possibility of forgiveness, and I don't mean that in a Kantian way, I just mean that in a concrete way, what conditions have to be fulfilled, that for forgiveness should not happen very often. Um, but it has been, at least my anecdotal experience, that forgiveness happens quite a lot. Um, anyone who's married and is able to keep it together, I think, could probably attest to that. And so there is the question, why does this improbable thing keep occurring frequently? Um, and I think to answer that, you need a theology. Well, that's a nice segue, because that's where I was planning to pivot anyways. Um, partly because I'm convinced by Recur's argument about the possibility mm. um, of forgiveness, but it has led me to a series of of questions or topics, which I'm going to list in order, um, no particular order, but put them out there. Um, and uh, the first has to do with the demand of forgiveness, which we see constantly in scripture, um, that we are reminded over and over, especially in Paul's letters, uh, that there is a responsibility to forgive um, because God has forgiven us, right? Um, or even in the Gospels in Matthew, right? If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not, your Father will not. Um, of course, the very famous Luke, you know, even uh, if your brother and sister, you know, how many times, like seven, you know, seven times, 70 times, aka all of them. Um, all of the times. Yeah. Be compared. Um, you know, or Ephesians, be kind and compassionate, forgive each other as Christ forgave you. Um, so there's a, con there's a continual, and there's a, I mean, I'm not going to spend all day um, quoting verses, but basically that um, there's a demand of forgiveness, at least um, put by Paul to, on Christians to forgive because of the fact that God has forgiven us. Um, but that pivots me to the the real and concrete problem that historically um, demands for forgiveness that are made on victims, because it's victims who have to forgive victimizers, not the other way around, um, has so often led to um, a skirting of justice instead of a transcending of justice, if that makes sense. So my second issue that I really want to think about or hear your thoughts about is that relationship of forgiveness to justice. Well, um, 
how do you have that? How do you, who can make demands essentially for forgiveness, if anyone? And, um, and essentially, how do you keep that in line with, um, with justice? Uh, which leads to my third point, I guess, which is um, the conditions of forgiveness. Is repentance necessary to it? Um, which, uh, thinking that through, led me to wonder, well, some people clearly forgive where there isn't repentance. Is there then a difference between forgiveness, which isn't predicated on repentance, and reconciliation, which is? Um, at the same time, again, biblically, especially in the Old Testament, um, God's forgiveness of Israel is always predicated on their repentance. Um, and he demands that from them. So thinking about that relationship. Um, yeah, actually, I'll stop there. Those are my questions. I think I hope they flow. They flow in my mind from one to the other. But when I'm thinking through this theologically, once we've admitted the possibility, well, what do you do with a demand for forgiveness and 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 those conditions? Do you need repentance? Um, how do you deal with justice? For for recur, you can't legislate forgiveness. And the reason you can't legislate forgiveness is because in doing so, you would make forgiveness something owed by the victim to the victimizer. And that seems just facially unacceptable. And, and it's not just facially unacceptable. It's also conceptually unacceptable because it, it inverts the difference of height and depth that he uses to analyze the possibility of forgiveness. And so you, you would actually make forgiveness impossible under those conditions. Because you wouldn't be, because the, the height and depth relationship would be upside down. Now, it's important, though, that Recur's analysis is philosophical and so operates within certain methodological constraints vis-a-vis properly revealed truths about the relationships that God and human beings relate, which you've invoked, right? That God forgives us is something revealed. And I think something that, that is properly revealed, right? Um, and so one needs the natural supernatural distinction here, I think that the much maligned natural supernatural distinction. Um, but actually it's, it's helpful to consider this concrete instance to think about the way in which that distinction between the natural and the supernatural, between the naturally known and the, and the properly revealed is controlled by uh, what Lonergan calls the theorem of the supernatural, which is a, a, a kind of. It's his way of articulating that the meaning of the two terms, natural and supernatural, natural knowledge and revealed knowledge, is controlled by a single insight about what distinguishes them. And what distinguishes them is the proportion between what human beings are capable of just as created and what human beings are made capable of by the gift of God's grace. And so we can say, that without the special help of God's grace, and, and really, you know, I like Lonergan's sort of scholastic framing of this because I, I like this language. You know, he talks about grace as a created communication of the divine nature. And so why is it that grace makes us capable of forgiveness? Um, and, and in a way makes us uh, susceptible to an, uh, a, a command to forgive? Well, it's because we receive a communication of God's nature. And what is revealed to us in the, uh, in, 
uh, forgive the repetition, the revelation that God forgives, well, that it's that God is the kind of God who forgives, that it is of God's nature to forgive. So um, I think if you try to hash out that question about the command to forgive without a distinction between the natural and supernatural, properly revealed knowledge and natural knowledge, between philosophy and theology, you're going to make hash of it. And you're going to make more, like really disturbing moral hash of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, then, so then it goes on to a kind of question about authority which I took to be your second question, right? Who has the authority to make the command to forgive? And uh, I'm indebted here to, to a, a Jesuit uh, biblical scholar named J.P.M. Walsh, who's at Georgetown. He may be retired now. He wrote a very good book called The Mighty from Their Thrones, appropriately enough, um, about power in the biblical tradition. And in it, he notes that, that one of the developments in the ancient Near Eastern world in, uh, in, for Israel, for Israel, is that the king's authority is not identified with the God's authority, right? The Israelite king doesn't take Marduk's hand at the New Year celebration every year. The, the, the king doesn't borrow divine absolute power, but is subjected to the power of God. Um, and so there's a kind of incipient theorem of the supernatural at work there. And I think when it comes to the command to forgive, um, I think there's a way in which, and I would have to think about specifically all the caveats I would want to put on this vis-a-vis Paul, et cetera, but, but I think there's a respect in which only God can command forgiveness um, because only God is proportionate to providing the means to make forgiveness something that um, can be a kind of practice of obedience. Um, so and so that's, that's kind of a lot on those first two questions. And the third question On the third question, um, I don't know. That one's, I have a lot of disorganized thoughts, so maybe I can punt it back to you guys. I don't actually remember what the third question was. Hey, will you repeat it for us, Robin? Uh, well, you renumbered my questions for me, so uh, you're going to have to remember what the third one was. Oh, it, uh, it was the one about um, justice uh, and oh. the conditions of... Forgiveness, justice and repentance. That's right. Justice and repentance. Yeah, those are questions two and four because uh, you broke question number one quite wisely down into to, to two different questions. Um, Got it. Yeah, but basically, um, forgiveness in the concrete circumstances has often been portrayed either as an alternative to justice or way more disturbingly, a way to skirt justice because um, the work, well, if victims forgive victimizers, then, well, there's nothing more you need to do about it, essentially, right? Um, so, uh, and I know you had a little bit, like, Recur has something, I mean, Der- I mean, that's Derrida's whole problem, right, with forgiveness, is that um, it's an impossibility in a world where you want justice, which is one of his ethical concerns, right? Um, so there's that, and then, and then tied to that, of course, is whether forgiveness is, is predicated on repentance, because repentance is an act that acknowledges uh, not only harm, but it acknowledges the injustice of the act. Um, so the question is, when you create that, um, and yet, when forgiveness is predicated on repentance as a necessity 
it puts more power into the hands again of the victimizers, right? Because they can hold out. You can deny repentance to somebody and thus deny opportunities for forgiveness. So those are, those two questions kind of go together. Um, and I haven't really thought through them completely, but one way I thought of of dealing with the necessity of repentance is to make a differentiation between forgiveness and reconciliation. So that forgiveness is not predicated on repentance, but reconciliation is. Reconciliation then being an an act of justice, but it has to be a, a disproportionate or transcendent act of justice because um, when you have like that deep level of abuse, you shouldn't just be able to have reconciliation, right? It seems to me that that has to be predicated on grace. And, and, um, and though forgiveness has a kind of synchronic element to it, um, it's a, it's a kind of, it's an act of freedom. I think at, at bottom, um, this is explicitly how Recur hashes it out. You know, Recur hashes it out in terms of um, that part of what forgiveness offers to the victimizer, right? Because remember, there's this difference of height and depth. And so the person who's been victimized is the person who stands on a moral height and offers forgiveness to someone who is deep in a moral depth. Um, which, if you only do a power analysis, um, can be lost. Right, because right? it can seem that, well, no, 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 the victimizer is sort of up on the height of having the power and the victimized are down in the depths of having uh, been, had their power or dignity or what have you taken from them. Um, but Recur wants to stick to this moral register where, no, the victimized, um, you know, uh, Walsh points to the, the Hebrew word nakam, this idea that there's a, a vindication that is owed. and. Um, and so that, that gives the, the victim a kind of moral height. And so if the victim chooses in this act of freedom to offer forgiveness to the, the victimizer in their moral depth, um, there's something synchronic. There's something, uh, there's something of uh, Kierkegaard's instant to it, right? It's kind of inbreaking. Um, but for something like reconciliation, for humans anyway, I think there has to be a diachronic process. Um, that there has to be, uh, Ricoeur talks about it in terms of attestation, right? That the, the person at fault has to acknowledge that they're at fault. Um, and so if there's going to be some kind of reconciliation, there has to be a diachronic process mediated by symbols and meaning. Um, and, what the, and what the victimizer receives in their moral depth is, an, is actually liberty. They, they are offered the opportunity to be um, to live into the future, right? time is a constant theme for Recur, to live into the future um, in a new way, in a way not circumscribed entirely by their past sins, by their past fault, by their past victimizing. Um, and, uh, and so, and so it, it's, a, it's a kind of um, opportunity at having a, a renewal of self for Recur. Um, and so liberty becomes a kind of central theme as well. That uh, what Recur, I would have to go back and reread it. One thing I remember not liking is that Recur spends a few pages on the liberation of the victimizer, which sounds strange, right? Um, but I think in the moral register, it's quite right. Um, and precisely what they are liberated to is to live justly. Um, 
So forgiveness becomes in a way a kind of uh, condition of possibility for reconciliation in that way of hashing out. We can decide if, or we can talk about whether that's adequate or not. But, but what he undersells for my money is the respect in which there's an exercise of freedom and thus an exercise of power on the part of the victim to forgive. Uh, right. th- that the power to forgive is something that, that uh, is sort of proper to the victim as a per- it adheres to their personhood in a way that uh, no victimizer can take away. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that, um, so you talked about forgiveness is freedom, and basically, um, so Miroslav Volf has a whole book on this topic, right? Um, it's called Free of Charge. I don't know, early 2000s maybe it came out. Um, and uh, he explicitly ties giving and forgiving together um, as both requiring freedom um, or both being things that you can only give freely. I mean, it's a bit redundant there, but, uh, but a gift cannot be something owed. Otherwise, it's not a gift. And forgiveness cannot be something owed. It's tied to giving. But the other, I think, move he makes is when his, in his discussion of freedom, it ends up being a freedom for, not a freedom from. So for both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven, um, it's not just a freedom from like past acts or a freedom from the current situation, but it's a freedom for both of them to live in an imitation of God, which is what we all should be doing for him, right? So, he, you know, um, God is the source of all gifts and, and all forgiveness, and we are called to imitate him. And part of participating in the life of the Trinity, um, for us, because we're on the, the creature side, not on the creator side, is forgiving so that we can be more like God and also being forgiven so that now we're, we're living in conditions, like you said, where we can be more just and whatever and live in the imitation of God. So. Um, is quite is quite tied up with that freedom for and and um one of to, to bring in one more sort of Lonergan conceptuality this time from insight you know Lonergan makes a distinction between essential and effective freedom and it seems to me that one of the things that at least traditional accounts of grace do is they give a really good account of the way in which the offer of grace as received and taken up uh, provides a supernatural essential freedom to forgive, among other things. But what that doesn't say uh, sort of automatically, you have to work it out, is how is it in the course of one's discipleship to Christ is that essential freedom that you're given, um, that, the sort of sub, uh, that, that sort of adheres to your, your substantial being, your, your personhood or something, um, how is that then concretized as an effective freedom? As, an, as a freedom you can concretely in the flow of time use. Um, and that, again, I think recurs right. It has to be a kind of diachronic, meaning-mediated process. Um, now, that can be with one's community. That can be with one's therapist, uh, friends, family, um, with oneself through reflection, etc. Um, but I think sometimes it's overlooked if you treat into metaphysical a register as much as I love metaphysics, the way in which the offer of grace makes one essentially free to forgive, that doesn't absolve uh, us of providing as a community 
the resources to people who have been victimized um, to be able to uh, take hold of their freedom, to be, to be liberated from the circumscriptions of trauma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that seems like uh, a work of a whole community to be able to hold up and support. Um, and because forgiveness is an act of freedom, then there, that can't be done with an expectation that, well, what we're, we're doing this so that you can return to us uh, the peacemaking act of forgiveness. Because then you make forgiveness something owed again and you've denatured it. Um, and so in a way, the liberty of uh, victims has to be, at least in my view, especially a kind of supernatural graced liberty has to be a task of the church that is done without any expectation uh, that they will forgive. Um, and, and so in that respect, um, when you're talking about effective freedom, when you're talking about a, 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 a freedom that's, that you can use, um, you actually need to talk about freedom from as well. Yeah, but it's so. not it's not enough to simply follow the the classical model, uh, the classical philosophical and theological model, and talk about um, freedom as the sort of uh, leisure for the realization of one's proper ends, uh, the a freedom for that that's all fine and 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 good, but but it it neglects the respect in which um, even that pursuit requires a practicable freedom. Uh, a practicable liberty, a, a freedom from, um, in which the, the, the liberty that one has to use um, has itself been liberated from the strictures and constraints of um, one's own history and biography and location, um, all, all the different ways in which uh, actually living life impinge upon um, the way and the ways in which that that liberty might be exercised, um, and so uh, for talking about forgiveness concretely is to is to also talk about freedom in both respects, uh, and and I'm afraid that's what the conversation often lacks, and perhaps what Lonergan can can help us with both philosophically and theologically is to identify the the, the ways in which um, freedom from and freedom for are. are bound up together and condition one another in the concrete. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's an important, an important way of, of thinking about those two um, sort of that, that's pretty commonly trotted out distinction, I think is, um, is a little bit like n natural and supernatural one where uh, when you push on them, you discover that they're, they're linked to each other in the concrete. Anything else on this y'all? I, th I think we just had a successful first segment, guys. Hey, check that out, man! And you know, I'm glad we we uh, we picked up a light load to carry for our first go at it. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, there was goodness. no weeping. There was no gnashing of teeth, and there was no yelling. So That's I'm, true. And I didn't hear a mic get thrown. So I'm a no, my mic is upright. But that 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 will give uh, I think folks a, a a taste of what it's like to uh, you know sit at the pub with us. Um, Picking a topic from a headline from the newspaper and then doing metaphysical deep dives on it. Uh, that's that just sort of right. how we roll. It's true. I watched my language more than I would at the pub, but we'll see. Maybe we'll get that little ready one of these days. Um, Recording in the morning is helpful for, for that. I think. True enough. Um, okay. Let's 
do pretty quickly, treasures old and new, and then we'll say goodbye. Uh, Robin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch to you on this one. Great. Well, I have two books to suggest, uh, a new one, which is Hans Borsma's Seeing God, the Beatific Vision in the Christian Tradition. Uh, it's a dogmatic and historical sweep um, of most of what has been said on the topic throughout Christian history. I haven't read it yet, uh, but I participated in one of Hans's seminars um, as he was putting the book together, and I was his TA for a couple of years, and I can tell you by the number of books I hauled uh, how well-researched this work is. Uh, my old treasure that I would suggest is uh, Kenneth Kirk's 1931, The Vision of God, which is probably the last time there was a systematic historical treatment um, of the beatific vision. It's worth looking up. It's beautifully written. And uh, he also did a great job of pulling kind of previously lost Christian writers um, out from the depths of a dusty library and into this uh, vibrant and interesting work. Awesome. Thank you. Ryan, uh, you can't see on our video feed, but Ryan's looking around at his bookshelves just now. Do you have you have a couple of books chambered for us or you need a second? I do. I, I just like being reminded that they're still there. Uh, so, so, um, this, this conversation that we've had today that, that, uh, has been executed in a very orderly and rational fashion, um, is the first time I've been able to, to even come within, within a stone's throw of, of these headlines, um, and not just lose my mind with anger and despair. And, um, uh, a friend of ours, um, uh, who who is both a very gifted philosophical theologian and a gifted poet uh, offered to um, lead me like Virgil leading Dante through uh, Peggy's uh, portal on the mystery of hope. Um, I have no uh, native facility for poetry and and find reading it soothing but ultimately perplexing. And so she's been providing me with very helpful study guides to work through pages of Pegui in very short order. So my, my, my old, my treasure old is, is Pegui's uh, work, um, which is a consideration of the theological virtues broadly um, in the ways in which they are ordered to hope in terms of surprise. And not just surprise for you and me uh, as people who are on the receiving end of these virtues, but even in at least in a poetic register, surprise in God um, that uh, in the in the course of our lives uh, that we should expect tomorrow to be better than today, um, or that the pains and privations of today might give way to joy tomorrow, uh, despite so many consecutive days of pain. Um, that hope uh, is a, is a surprise to everyone involved. It's also my treasure new because um, I'm not reading it in French. I'm reading it in English, um, which uh, David Schindler translated not too many years ago uh, for Erdman's uh, Resource Mall series. Um, so at least that uh, work of Peggy is readily available in English to anyone who wants to read it. Wow, what economy. Um, great. I. I'm going to say for my uh, treasure old, Maurice Blondel's L'Action, 
which is translated in English as Action 1893 by Oliver Blanchet. It's from Notre Dame Press. And um, you'll find Blondell in the footnotes of Dulubach, Hansors von Balthasar, shows up all over the place. Um, and occasionally in the literature, you'll see people make brief but not very in-depth reference to Action and other works by Blondell. And uh, I hope you'll take my word for it that digging into his philosophy and its um, consideration of human life and action and willing and the role of the supernatural in that is worth your time to know what he said himself and to try and find your way to the inside of his uh, sometimes quite challenging arguments. And then for my treasure new uh, is from a couple of years ago, Pat Byrne, who's a philosophy uh, professor at Boston College, published after a long gestation his uh, book uh, of Foundations in uh, sort of Lonerganian Ethics called The Ethics of Discernment. Uh, and you should definitely grab that. Um, Byrne is a uniquely careful and responsible scholar. He provides a remarkably clear presentation of sort of the Lonergan basics if you're interested in that. But I think the promise of a Lonerganian foundation in ethics suggests a path past uh, some usual sticking points in contemporary conversations about ethics um, and suggests that ethical conversations and ethical discourse and ethical ruminations can occur in a way that is um, deeply personal. That, that, it, that involves you as a whole person. So that would be worth your time. I'm holding it in my hand right now. Yeah, there it is. It's got a lovely, lovely painting on the cover. Okay. University of Toronto Press, if, if y'all are wondering. Yeah. Okay. So I think that about does it for us. Um, our intro and outro music is from one of my favorites, Nine Inch Nails. It's track 14 off of Ghosts 2. Thank you, Trent Reznor, and your Creative Commons license. Again, if you want to find us on Twitter, the podcast is at SystematicPod on Twitter, at SystematicPod. And with that, I think we're going to say goodbye. So folks, remember this week, be attentive. So long. Bye.